what's the best way for a fraud examiner to network? So I, I think the ACFE Global Conference is great tomorrow, and I don't know when this is going to like land, but tomorrow I am going to the, I'm a panelist for the ACFE Women's Summit. That was Kelly Paxton, the well-known certified fraud examiner and co-host of the podcast Fraud-ish. We have a wide-ranging discussion today on women in fraud risk and fraud examination, how you can build out your network by going to conferences, by speaking, and through LinkedIn. It's a fascinating podcast episode with one of the top certified fraud examiners around. I know you'll enjoy this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report with guest Kelly Paxton. First, a quick message from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and you are in for a treat today, of course, because I'm in for a treat. We have someone who is long overdue to the podcast. I can't believe I haven't had her on before, but I've got her now, Kelly Paxton. Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Oh, thank you. This is my honor and my pleasure. So, Kelly, you have been on social media probably as long as I have. You come at it from a little bit different angle, fraud examiner angle. You have played in that space for a long, long time. You've had a long career in that. What are you up to these days? Right now, I'm primarily teaching fraud and ethics to not only my peers, but also to business owners, because at the end of the day, the business owners are the ones who have the assets that are getting stolen. So I, you know, I will never give up teaching my peers, like auditors, fraud examiners, accountants, but really I want the business owners to understand how fraud can easily be perpetrated on them because they're the ones with the assets. So where would you assess or how would you assess the knowledge of fraud risk management in corporate America today? I think it's all over the place. I think there are some corporations that for whatever reason, and maybe it's because they started out, say, in loss prevention, thinking that, you know, they were getting so ripped off by shoplifters that they built a program. But then there's other corporations that I think just kind of don't really think it can happen to them. We have this thing called optimism bias. We don't think bad things will happen to us. Even more so, we don't think bad things will happen to us as compared to thinking good things will happen to us. So we hire people we know, like, and trust. So why would they steal? As you know, I play in the anti-corruption space, which is a subset of fraud. And I have advocated for the longest time that effective compliance equates to better and more efficient business process, which equates to greater ROI. Do you see that same equation in your area of fraud risk management? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was at a place where I brought in 10 times my salary from recovering stolen assets. So I don't consider fraud, you know, prevention a cost center, and you shouldn't consider it a cost center, but at the same time, you can't sit there and go, well, we're going to make money off this. But like, don't look at it as a cost center. Give the fraud professionals the ability to to keep training and to networking. In that case where I got 10 times my salary, it was all because of networking. I reached out to someone I had met from somewhere else, and the person had done something similar somewhere else. So it was the networking, and we need to network. And so There's a lot of people right now who are like, oh, we can go just do online Zoom stuff, which, you know, for me as a trainer, it's nice because I don't I can I don't have to leave my cozy home. But we need to get out and meet people and shake hands. And uh, because those are the people that are going to help us. 
Like, I can't tell you how many people I can reach out to to get an answer to something or introduce someone who needs that answer. So networking is really important. I mean, I'm not going to say it's expensive, but like, you got to keep your employees out in the space and meeting people, I think. So how would you suggest they network at a national conference, at a industry event in a local town, or what's the best way for a fraud examiner to network? So I think the ACFE Global Conference is great tomorrow, and I don't know when this is going to like land, but tomorrow I am going to the, I'm a panelist for um, the ACFE Women's Summit. Now, what I did was I looked and saw all the other people that were presenting. And what I did, the people that I wasn't already connected to on LinkedIn, I sent a personalized message and said, hey, I'm going to be at the Women's Summit. I can't wait for your presentation. And I can't. And like, so I did four connections and they're going to remember that, oh, she was the one who reached out before the conference and said, hey, I'm going to see your presentation. It's a really easy thing to do, but like a lot of people don't do it. Uh, I'm going to ramp that up to about 99.99% of people don't do it. Not just a lot. Uh, One of the things I do is for conferences, I contract to help market those conferences through a short podcast on of the speakers. So I get to interview the speakers and it's three questions. What do you do? Top preview of your topic. And what do you hope to get out of the conference? And it's a very long winded way of me doing exactly what you've just described because I get to meet all the speakers Yeah, and, and I get to say the same thing. I am so excited about your topic. I can't wait to hear it. And that is the best way to get more information, make more connections. And you really almost have a lifetime connection if you say that to someone. Well, and the other thing, the genius of LinkedIn is, so say, you know, you meet the person, you sent, you sent the invitation, you meet the person and a couple of years down the road, you're like, that person pops up again and you go back in your messages and you remember Oh yeah, I saw them there. I connected there. I just, and I can't remember if it was like Adam Grant. It was one of the, you know, kind of top thinkers in this space. And it's like, you get jobs from your second connections, not your first connections, your second connections. So I'm working on a lot of second connections, but not just for me, for other fraud professionals, because some of them don't understand, like, okay, I'm ex-law enforcement. A lot of law enforcement don't like to get on socials. Like they just don't, they're private, you know, if you want to transition into private sector and most all of them do eventually, uh, you've got to get comfortable with it. And again, this is another sort of like soapbox thing is LinkedIn. It's not a billboard. It's not like, Hey, I went to the women's summit. Look at me. It's, Hey, I went to the women's summit. I met the most amazing person who did a presentation on this. You should connect with this person can't be a billboard about you. It has to be something that is helpful to your audience. Uh, uh, That's an equally prescient point. How would you assess the opportunity for female fraud examiners in our current market? Is it increasing? Do you see more women sort of taking the path you took? You know, I don't know numbers, but I just did two conferences last week and they were kind of one step removed from fraud examiners, but they were there to learn about fraud. And I'd say they were about 50-50. Now, this is, you know, I'm the pink collar crime lady, so people think it's all about women committing any type of crime. It's position, not gender. Women are really good at embezzlement. But what happens is people underestimate women. And we're nice. We're just nice. And so, you know, we're kind of Columbo-ish. 
but we can also put on the charm more than I'm going to say Columbo-ish. So I think there's a lot of room for women in the industry, a lot, a lot of room for women in the industry. And I'd like to, I really want more women to get out speaking about what they do. That's another thing about what I, at this point in my career, teaching and training, I'm not doing boots on the ground investigations like I used to. Uh, I want women to get in the speaking space because they need to share, like they need to share their genius. So I'm always pushing women to throw your name in the ring to speak at a conference. You mentioned one of the differences in working in law enforcement in the private sector. How hard is that transition to make from law enforcement to the private sector? Because I've always been in the private sector and I'm even more, I've always been on the civil side of things. So I just have, do not have that understanding or that grounding in the criminal side of things. How hard is it to make that transition? Well, I don't think it was difficult for me because I started in the private sector. I was in finance and then a client of ours got arrested and I was like, oh, I want to do that. So I went into federal law enforcement. Then I went into local law enforcement. But I grew up with a dad who was in finance and I saw sort of, I'm going to say etiquette and, you know, things like that, that when you're in law enforcement, people call you. You don't really have to search for clients. You don't eat what you kill. Whereas in the private sector, you eat what you kill. And so you need to learn those skills. You need to, this was a couple of years ago. I worked with a guy at a local sheriff's office and he wanted to go work where I had worked in the private sector. I went and I met him for coffee. Um, and I gave him kind of the lowdown and it turns out it wouldn't have been a good fit for him. So he decided not to do it. There was no thank you. There was no send me a message on LinkedIn. Thank you. Not going to work for me, but I appreciate your time. You need to learn those skills. Like, and some people are really good. As a matter of fact, I was just in Portland last week and a friend of mine who coaches professionals about career change and things like that, he introduced me to a young man who's in video production. And, and then, oh, I took a plane. As I'm on the plane at the airport, I get a LinkedIn introduction. He goes, hey, it was so nice to just meet you at the club. I look forward to following you on LinkedIn. And thank you so much for your time. That kid, I will refer. Like he knew exactly how to follow up. So you have to know how to follow up. And like cops just, you know, they get sent out on calls. They don't have to, they don't have to search for business. But when you're in the private sector, you're going to have to make those connections. So where does someone start in 2023 if they want to pursue fraud risk management as a professional career? I am a huge proponent of the certified fraud examiner designation. It's a great community. The material for the test, I think is very, very interesting. I mean, I did it in 2009, I believe. Um, the community is so good. They put on great conferences. They have local chapters. So the ACFE, I kind of think is the gold standard, but also with COVID, there are a lot of resources online. I have a great colleague, friend, dear friend. She teaches for online training programs and her stuff is great. So there's a lot of ways to get involved where you don't have to go to say an expensive conference and stay in the expensive hotel and fly there. The first thing I'm going to say is you, you've got to be on LinkedIn and you've got to grow your network. I was just telling someone they were like at 442 connections. I'm like, you got to get over the 500. And he's like, what's the 500? And I'm like, just look, what's, you got to get over the 500. 
you know, don't hit connect, personalize your connections. So, you know, if you can attend a conference like the ACFE Global, but there's also other conferences out there. There's like, you know, there's different fields of fraud or anti-fraud. I'm in the embezzlement sort of white collar space, but maybe you're in online commerce. So Carice Hendricks is a great person. She's got a podcast twice a week that does more online merchant fraud. The internet is your best friend to find these people really is. So how do you, or how would you advocate someone utilize social media to not only meet and network, but extend their reach and their brand? Well, that's so funny because I never really knew about brand until I went to a large sportswear company and I kind of pushed off the whole brand thing for me personally, like company, of course, there's a a brand, but for me personally, I was like, Oh, I just put my head down, do my work. Well, that wasn't so good. So I am a big proponent of brand. I have a brand. People refer to me as pink. I'm the pink collar crime lady. Um, I think it was in 2018. I went to my virtual assistant and I came back from a big conference, the National Speakers Association conference, and I wanted to start a podcast. And then she put all the lists of everything I needed to do to start a podcast. And she's like, I thought you said you wanted to earn money. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess so. So I put it on the back burner. COVID happened. And I'm like, I'm doing the podcast. And you know why I'm doing the podcast? And I know you know these two women colleagues dearly. Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I was on Great Women in Compliance. And I'm like, I love their podcast. I want to do that for Great Women in Fraud. And I I did Great Women in Fraud. And it started because of COVID. Do I make money on my podcast? No. Do I love it? Do I get to have conversations with amazing people like you and Lisa and Mary? Yeah. And people get to hear it. So podcast is a lot, a lot of work. I will not kid you on that. But I'm also marketed as an author. I've written a book, a podcast host. I mean, kind of, I think my LinkedIn title now is like author, podcast host, fraud connector, and then investigator at the end. I mean, my point, that's kind of at the end these days. How do you use, well, let me, uh, as you know, I love podcasting. And one of the reasons I love it is I get to talk to cool, interesting people all day long. Now, So what are two or three of the podcasts that you've enjoyed the most? Okay, well, number one, I have to say is Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. And it's kind of a weird one, you would think, for me, because it's kind of the intersection of tech and business. But they're always ahead on the tech. Um, I really like it for everything tech. And we're all in tech these days. I mean, we just are. We use tech nonstop. It makes our job easier. So Pivot is always a must listen. And it drops on Tuesdays and Fridays. And, and then let's, I have so many, I'm going to like pull up, you know, one I really, really like, oh, Hidden Brain, Shankar Vedantam. Are you familiar with him? Yes. I saw him present. I have a picture of him on my phone, but I saw him present. He's so good. He's so incredibly thoughtful. He really gets you to think like about so many different things. So Hidden Brain is also another one. Of course, Great Women in Compliance. I mean, you know, Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley, they're delightful. Um, another one that, so uh, there is, God, there's so many good ones. Um, totally separate is like the happiest happiness lab. I really like that. Uh, anything with, well, this is an interesting one that maybe the audience will like. Dear friend of mine, it's from Hostage to Hero. 
And it's about plaintiff lawyers going to trial and it's mindset. And Sari is a friend of mine. She's coached me in the past for presentation skills, drops every Friday and it's short. I love listening to it because even though I'm not a lawyer, uh, we work with lawyers and I think it's really helpful to kind of see how they can improve their mindset. So that's another like big one that I listen to. And of course, Swindled, love Swindled. He does a great job. So, I mean, I listen to podcasts every day. <laughs> so do I. And I now teach people or try to let, teach people why they need a podcast and how they go about doing it. The statistics on podcasts are just nothing short of amazing. Uh, over one third of all Americans have listened to a podcast. 25% of Americans listen to multiple podcasts each week. And that number, highest component of that number is nine. And it's just a great format. And like yourself, I've used it to create a brand from rural West Texas. <laughs> so what episode are you on right now in your podcast? About. I know I'm like about. <laughs> well, so I just uploaded 647 on my oldest podcast uh, for reasons completely unknown to me. Now I have two daily podcasts. That's a lot. So, so I'm doing 331 days to a more effective compliance program. I'm doing a five minute podcast on compliance tips every day this year, every business day, not every day. That's and I have awesome. A daily, yeah. I have a daily news show. I think the FCPA compliance report is, other than the daily show, the daily news show is probably the one I have the most episodes on. About 5,000 total. Uh, That's amazing because, you know, podcast fade is seven. Most people <laughs> drop after seven. So I've broken 100. I'm very happy. <laughs> my charm and my problem is the same thing. I have one switch. It's on and off. I have no dimmer. Once it goes on, <laughs> it stays on until it goes off. No. Uh, but... In terms of your podcast, could you describe it for us? Sure. So it started out as Great Women in Fraud. I did have great dudes in fraud. So it wasn't only women guests, but you had to be a special dude. No. <laughs> and then I switched it to Fraudish. And the reason I did was I want a bigger audience to understand about fraud and how it can happen, how you can be part of the fraud and, you know, investigation world. So I thought Fraudish was kind of a bigger umbrella for people to get under and it has been. So I speak with fraud professionals, compliance, audit. I also speak with, I call them my felon friends who have committed a fraud and have, you know, been to prison and have rehabilitated. I also speak to victims of fraud. So it kind of runs the gamut. And I want to say I'm a huge behavioral science person. I want people to understand that good people can make bad choices and how easy it is. That's why I love teaching ethics. And actually, I taught an ethics class last week. And no offense to the lawyers in the audience. A lawyer told me in the audience that was the best ethics presentation she's ever attended. Because I don't say it depends. <laughs> but so the fraudish, like, fun stories. It's And everyone says it's like getting to sit and listen to Kelly have coffee with someone. Uh, that's what I tell people this podcast is, A Cup of Coffee with Tom. Yeah, yeah. So in my head, I have this stereotypical picture of a fraud examiner as someone with a little Bob Cratchit hat, and they're beavered over a set of books, and they take that information, and they sit down and interview someone, and it is either the aha moment 
and you get them to admit to the fraud, or you put a piece of paper down in front of them and say, help me explain this. Is that stereotypical picture valid or not? I like the help me explain this, not the aha, I got you. Um, I just finished a chapter. It'll be coming out this year. Chelsea Benz and Bruce Sackman are doing like version two of the art of investigation. And I got to choose my chapter and it was on empathy. I truly, truly believe in empathy and investigations. We never know what a person is going through. You need to do a lot of work before you sit down across the table from that person. But you need to be kind. We don't know what a person is going through. There's a woman, and I show a picture of her in one of my presentations, 87 years old. Her husband got cancer, and she stole $27,000 from the township she worked. Am I going to sit and say, Maxine, you are a naughty person? No. Like, that, the good cop, bad cop, no. Even though I did work with audit, and I kind of got known as the bad cop, but just because, I don't know, I was taller than her, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) fraud and crime you know we look at fraud we people grew up thinking about bad guys and I thought of crime as bad guys and I thought of getting burglarized or getting robbed but realistically crime on main street or sweet crime versus street crime is more likely to affect you and you know there's the fraud triangle of opportunity pressure and rationalization we never know what a person is going through we just don't And, you know, also like to give the caveat is I'm excluding psychopaths and narcissists because they're not a huge percentage of the population and maybe the more entrepreneurial. I don't know. (laughs) So the few fraudsters I've met, and this is in the friends felon category, after meeting them, I thought, you know, I really like that person. They are really slick. Is is that stereotype true, or is it the 87-year-old who feels so much pressure they make a bad decision? I mean, I've definitely met some slick ones, but I've met a lot of people that you would have never thought. I don't know. If you haven't had them on the podcast, you must get them on the podcast. Do you know Tom Harden? No. Tipper X? Oh, his story. I, literally, goosebumps. Every time I say his name, Goosebumps. He was Tipper X of the Raj Rajatnam, you know, insider trading scandal. And his story, every young professional should hear it, period. And I won't spoil it because I hope you can get him on because you will. He he made four bad decisions and, you know, got caught, didn't go to prison. But he has worked so incredibly hard to... Get the message out that, yes, this can happen to you. Is he slick? No. Was he ever slick? I don't think he was ever slick. I think he was a hardworking young hedge funder under a lot of pressure. So you got to get him on your show because he's like, he is delightful and he's not slick. The first guy who got me into law enforcement, and I can say his name, Alan Taylor, he was slick. You know, the Ponzi sort of ones, I would say Bernie Madoff, slick. In a polished sort of way, but he was definitely slick. So, but my case is because I'm known as the pink collar crime lady, which again is garden variety embezzlement. They're the women on, you know, Main Street. They're the ones who office manager for a dentist or a medical professional, or they run the kids soccer club, or they're working at their child's private school. They're people that look like us. And, you know, I'd rather go out with some of them than some of my coworkers I've had in the past. And that really led me or leads me to to maybe explore 
who is your typical client, if that's even fair characterization? Is it a township? Is it a small corporation? Is it a Fortune 100? Is it something in between or all of the above or none of the above? Well, it runs the gamut. I want to say sort of my sweet spot is a business on Main Street, whether that's a municipal business, you know, a school, something like that. The Fortune 100, they have internal departments of fraud, and if they don't, they should. Um, So I'm going to say my sweet spot is the small to medium-sized business that don't feel a need to have, I mean, they may not even have a legal department. They may outsource it. So so when it does happen to them, they're shocked, and they kind of don't know what to do. Like, I mean, I say investigations is a lot like porn in that, and I know this is a clean show, if you get caught, if you catch someone, you're going to go online and you're going to Google stuff. You're not going to like go buy a big book on embezzlement and bring carry it into the office so your whole staff can see. You're going to kind of search anonymously online, like, how did she steal from me? Or like easiest way to forge a check. They're going to do stuff like that. So that's why I say it's porn. It's like, it's a very private thing and people are embarrassed. There's a lot of shame and humiliation. The other sort of group of clients I'm going to say that I have are victims of embezzlement. Like I'm I'm cheaper than the lawyer to cry on their shoulder. But I've also done defense work. I love doing defense work. Like, you know, we have bad doctors, we have bad lawyers, we have bad cops. And I'm not saying that any of them do it purposely, but... Defense work, I can look at everything. I can look for exculpatory evidence. So I do really love defense work too. You know, everything is about, for me, the why. Why'd you do it? I don't really care about them. Money's replaceable. We can sell more time. We can sell more widgets. We can do more root canals. It's the trust in the why. Like, why did they think they could do it? Why did they think they could get away with it? You know, So I'm always curious into sort of the much more human side of it. Where should a Fortune 100 corporate fraud department or section sit in an organization? Should it sit in internal audit? Should it sit separately? Should it be in security? Where do you advise? Well, I've sat under legal, but with all of internal audit, corporate security, it seemed fine to me. And there's a lot of crossing. Like I had a great internal audit partner, like a great internal audit partner, because she knew more of the systems than I did. Um, so I really liked that. And then security, you know, security can be an issue. This is uh, these people who are, quote, good people or, you know, they have a lot of status. When they get when the gig is up, they are desperate. Most of them are very desperate because they didn't grow up in a bad neighborhood with friends who have been to prison. They don't understand that going to prison for some people is three hots and a cot and health insurance. These are people who they are knocked from here down to here and they don't know what to do. So security is an issue because they can become very desperate. Well, Kelly, unfortunately we are near the end of our time for this episode, but before we leave, I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, your podcast, really any of the topics we've touched on, what would be the best place you would suggest or places for them to go? Well, thank you. So LinkedIn, I love LinkedIn. I'm always growing my network. So reach out to me on LinkedIn and say, this is my little tip, say, hey, I heard you talk with Tom Fox or, you know, I love LinkedIn and it's just Kelly Paxton. Also pinkcollarcrime.com or Kelly 
or kellypaxton.com. And then also my podcast with my baby, Fraudish. So, yeah. And thank you so, so much for having me. It truly is an honor. Well, Kelly, thank you. And I hope we can continue this conversation. Absolutely. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning FCPA Compliance Report. I would appreciate it if you would subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on any podcast platform that you're using. I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.